Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Muhammad Peace and love, y'all and brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast. Welcome back. This is an episode that's extremely important, one that I'm really excited for, because the guest is BK1, who is the producer of this podcast and my partner in Travelers Media, and really is, I mean, I'm not exaggerating even a little bit when I say that he's one of the most important people in my life and career. He's played a huge role in the world knowing who I am and helping me figure out how to present myself both on records and definitely on stage. But you'll hear we're going to spread this one out over two episodes because it's such an amazing story and an amazing life and just an incredible person. And it's also important to the foundation of my career, but also early underground hip-hop music in Minneapolis and the scene that emerged. And then also he's done amazing work with Radio Justice, and he's a producer and a DJ and has released incredible music. So you're just going to really hear an incredible story that's really important to this podcast and to my work. I also want to mention that the way that we support this show is that we have something that we call a caravan, which is very similar to like a Patreon, where the people that are part of what we do can build community, can be together. And we also have this ever-growing catalog and cachet of rare, exclusive music and videos and lectures and podcasts. And in commemoration of this episode, we just posted there a recording that was done from our last tour together, the Fresh Air Tour, when we launched the Us album in 2009. And so this is the tour that we did with Evidence, is when Evidence first started coming around Rhymesayers. Toki Wright was on that tour. BK1 DJed the whole tour. And it just so happened that somebody at Mr. Pleasance in Louisville, Kentucky, was recording us on the board, on the soundboard. I don't know who did that. It just showed up mysteriously. Um, but we've been sitting on it all this time. And it's a really beautiful snapshot for what those shows were like. It's not the New York show. It's not the Minneapolis homecoming show. This is just a tiny packed club in the Midwest full of people that love underground independent hip-hop music. They're saying every word. You can hear my voice is raspy from being on tour. I think we were nearing the end of the, of the tour that was over 50 shows in 60 days. Really amazing time and a really beautiful snapshot. So if you go to brotherali.com in the join section, you'll be able to get down with the caravan. It's only $5 a month at the, at the basic level. We've been sponsored from day one, and we're really honored to say that by the Zakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T. That's the part of Islam that deals with giving back and charity. And Zakat Foundation is a really dope organization that works all over the world. Uh, it's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't proselytize. They don't try to convert people. They don't only help Muslims. So they work in Ukraine, for example, and Ukraine doesn't always have a great track record for dealing with Muslims, but wherever there's need, the Zakat Foundation is trying to figure out how to show up. They partner with people on the ground. It's a really, really dope organization. So while you're listening to this, go to Zakat, Z-A-K-A-T dot org, and just click around a little bit, find something that looks dope, and know that you'll be giving to an organization that is real, it's true, it's genuine. That stuff really does help people. So, uh, yeah, man, uh, welcome to uh, a, a major, major chapter of my life and uh, really the story that brought all of this stuff about, uh, the Traveler's Podcast with my man BK1, part one.
All right. <laughs> so there's a lot of these where I like talk to people that I know really well. And it's really strange trying to figure out like, how do I have a conversation publicly with a person that I know so well? Yeah. And so I've been trying to think since we started this, like how to do this one. So I think I'm just going to do what I do best and center myself. <laughs> and <I'm> like, <laughs> Sounds about right. But yeah, just kind of like the way that I discovered these things. I was riding on the bus and Rasul, who just found me on, <laughs> on Facebook, um, was a bus driver. We worked together at UPS at night. At that point in 1998 or so when I met him, he tried to have every hip hop release that he could get his hands on. So he had like this apartment with just everything. And me and about two or three other guys, we would go to his house and he would just make us tapes and tapes and tapes and tapes and tapes of music that we never heard. He's the one that gave me the tape with Atmosphere and Beyond on it. He's the one that told me about that the underground existed. Mm -hmm. Cause like, I didn't know about the white label era and college radio and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was like, man, how do you even, aside from coming to your house, how do you hear this music? And he's the one that actually told me about the beatbox. Hmm. So I got up on a Saturday morning, I think like eight to noon was my teaching shift at, at the, at the masjid. And then when I got done, I, I turned it on basically riding the number five on the way home. Mm -hmm. And so I heard the show and I heard you guys, i specifically remember like the things that you were playing. And one of them was Dilated Peoples, but you were just playing all this hip hop music I never heard of before. Mm -hmm. And then I'm hearing like you guys talk about all these like white labels that were coming out and, you know, this like whole movement of music. And so I called and I don't know who answered the phone, but I was like, where are you? Yeah. What's, where physically are you right now? And somebody told me the Rarick Center and I got on the bus and just went over there and just demanded to be... <laughs> played on the radio and yeah like on your show and mm -hmm. <laughs> and and in your life yeah so that was the first part you know cuz there's other things that I learned about you and about your past once once I once it took a minute for me to focus on on like no this is the guy out of all these guys this is the guy that's most interesting to me mm. but just if you could talk about what that show was like what that time was like yeah, the beatbox was the underground hip hop radio show uh, that two friends and I started uh, in 1998 on Radio K, uh, the University of Minnesota's college radio station. And the idea behind it was that it was a time, you know, you and I grew up in an era of hip hop where hip hop was a big tent. And there were a lot of different sounds. There were a lot of different identities. There were a lot of different styles. But I think, you know, something that you and I share is that we grew up viewing all of it as hip hop and all of it as being equally important to that culture. You know, the mid 90s, um, shortly after they started putting barcodes on the back of albums and, and started realizing that country music and hip hop music were making a lot more revenue than anybody realized the recording industry takes notice and starts investing serious money into these art forms. And to oversimplify the story a bit, you know, corporate America's idea of what hip hop is and where there was money to be made was extremely narrow. And suddenly this art form that we love and this culture that we love that had 
so many different faces and voices and manifestations felt like it was getting flattened yeah and there was really just kind of one version of hip-hop that was getting pushed on us yeah you know what sometimes gets called like the shiny suit era um or like aspirational rap the hype williams era of rap and there was a lot of good music that 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 came out but there just wasn't a lot of oxygen left for anything else and i'm saying all this to say that as a reaction to that you know, around the time that we started our radio show, there was this counter movement within hip hop that was like forcefully asserting this, this other identity and these other values, this other approach to hip hop. And it was, it was a very prolific era. Um, it was an incredibly creative era. And it was also an era with a lot of independent business people. And so a lot of this music got released in very small batches. A lot of it got released only on vinyl. A lot of it was released. Um, there was a lot of really high quality music that was coming out that was hard to know about, hard to find. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't have a turntable, it might be impossible for you to, to, to purchase and play. But not only that, but like, how did you, how did you even buy those, those records? Like I'm mm -hmm. saying... I had a turntable, but I didn't even know, like, the Fifth Element didn't exist at that time. Yeah. I mean, could, like, could you get those? I didn't even know they existed, but, like, did you get them at Cheapo? Did you have to, like, send in for them somewhere? Like, like record pools or, like... Right. So it was... Two things were happening. One, like I said, it was kind of the era where independent business people were really thriving. And so you might come across an all-natural or the mole men or you know some of the stuff happening out of ohio you know people that we ended up becoming friends with in a lot of cases and you might need to just find an address or a phone number you know i i remember getting a moleman hoodie by calling them repeatedly on saturdays like four saturdays in a row until somebody picked up the phone and then we just worked it out over the phone and i mailed them cash crazy <laughs> you know uh but it was also the era this was the beginning of like sandbox automatic oh, okay. um hip-hop dx now these were very like mom and pop kind of shops you know mm -hmm. but the the beginning of internet commerce made a lot of this possible too oh, okay um and so you know like I i'm thinking about how okay you think about like 97 98 somebody might be a really big fan of Yasin Bey, Mostef, they might have Black on Both Sides, they might have the Black Star album, they might even know about urban thermal dynamics. But without a record player and without knowing the right places to be looking, there's probably two to three albums worth of material that came out by Yasin Bey in those two years. Medina that Green. you would never know. Yeah, I mean, you know, all these, all these 12 inches that he's featured on, you know, I'm thinking about a record that you and I used in our live set for a while that's a um, a white woman from Germany, a woman that appears white-bodied from Germany named Bricks with two or three X's in her name mm. featuring Mostef, you know, without, um, without like a sandbox automatic. How do you even know that that exists? How do you find something like that? And again, if you're not that person that's just like, I will buy anything that has AC Alone's name on it, right? especially if it comes with a white label with no writing on it, 
and you have to order it from Japan. Sign me up, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. you know, I, I say all of this to say it, well, in part just to smile and remember a really fun era to be a DJ, but also just that we really benefited from being in the right place at the right time and willing to put the work in. It was an era where people were really craving something different. The, the thing that was different that was available was incredible. It was really plentiful. And we were the only ones who knew how to find it. <laughs> um, and then I think the other thing that really set us apart from anything else you could find on the radio at that time is that we had a big focus on local music. And that's really the other piece of the puzzle that we benefited from. Yeah. The, the show, the beatbox, was created and ascended at the same time that Headshots was morphing into Rhymesayers and a crew full of really talented and hardworking people was transforming into a business mm -hmm. with self-interest for promotion and an ecosystem around it of, of really great local rap. And, 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 you know, that really leads to you walking in the door. It's not that you bullied your way in. You know, we had really established the beatbox as a place where local rappers were welcomed and encouraged. Okay. One of the things that I've been working on as part of a music project is going through all the old recordings from that era. You know, I've got just hours and hours of recordings of interviews and freestyles and on-air uh, contests recordings of me interviewing Dell the funky homo sapien and the guys from all natural outside of first avenue and yeah i mean it, it's it's an era it's a lot of memories and importantly to me it's really the beginning of of two very very important pieces of who i would become one of them being community media that is a space where i really cut my teeth as a public person as a performer in Minneapolis. It's the first time that I really tried out hip hop style DJing on vinyl. It's the first time that I edited audio digitally, recording promos and throwing shows, marketing, finding my voice, speaking in community spaces. You know, so much of that all starts with the beatbox and Radio K. And then, of course, my introduction to you and Musab and Slug and Sadiq and Idea and so many of the people who would go on to be collaborators and close friends and people who I got to tour the world with. It all starts in that little windowless room <laughs> in the, on like this, what is that, the seventh yeah. floor of the Rarick what Center. Was, how did you first encounter Slug and Idea and Saab? Yeah. I just, I, just, I just want people to hear you just talk about that very early time, like when they were still putting out a one cassette tape every year. Mm -hmm. my, my memory is that my introduction to those three all came on the same night on the university campus um, in the basement of the student center. There's a little club, you know, they've got like the, sort of the nice concert theaters where you can go see like a string quartet play or, or go see a choral group perform. But if you just want to see some underground rap in 1996, you, you go to the basement of the student center and, and there's like this moist club painted entirely matte black 
called the hole, mm-hmm. which is exactly what it was. <laughs> Just a hole in the basement where, where they threw some speakers up. And, um, you know, their friend who I never got a chance to meet, but, but heard so much about, uh, Sess, who was so important to so many of these people, um, had died in a car crash recently oh, and they were throwing a benefit show that they were calling the hip hop Olympics. They had done the hip hop Olympics once before. Um, I don't know if it was a full year earlier that I didn't know about and I didn't go to, but the second hip hop Olympics, which, uh, was a benefit concert for Sess's family, um, was held in the hole and it was all, all these incredibly young, incredibly talented hip hop, uh, artists doing a number of like freestyle exercises. And I mean, it's kind of what it sounded like. It was the hip hop Olympics and, you know, growing up in Milwaukee, there was a rich local music scene with bands that were recording themselves and putting out their own music and organizing their own shows. So I, I was not unfamiliar with the DIY ethic. I was not unfamiliar with the idea of creating a scene for the music that you love when one doesn't exist, but there was something different here. Right. These were guys that were looking to cut off heads and, and were showing me that night that yeah. they had all the tools necessary to do that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, and I'll also say in Milwaukee, groups that I had real proximity to and who I played in groups with members, you know, members of those bands, there were groups like Citizen King who became like one hit wonders and had songs and like soundtracks of movies. And like, I had seen what it looked like for the people that you know, the people who you go to like a Greek restaurant with and stay up late, you know, eating heroes with, that it's possible for those people to get seen by the big world and to have money thrown at them and to go play Conan or whatever the show was at the time. I'd, I'd, I'd seen what that looked like. Um, all the same, something felt different in that room. Like I'm at the beginning of something with a long tail. I didn't feel any ownership of it. I didn't feel like I had a, a, a right to belong. It wasn't like, these are my people. It was like, oh, this is about to be something really big. And I don't remember who or how contact was made with those guys along the lines of, hey, we have an underground hip hop show that's built for what you're doing, you know. But very quickly after that, we had a relationship with them. They became regular guests of the show. Over my right shoulder, there's a stack of just tapes and tapes of interviews and freestyles and appearances and and whatever, because we had a symbiotic relationship, you know. They were doing lots and lots of shows and were releasing music at a, at a pretty quick pace. Yeah. And we had a place to promote it. And we had a show that benefited from exciting content and live appearances. And like I said, a big part of, of our success came from having access to great music that was really hard to find otherwise. And this fit into that perfectly. Now, Rhyme Sayers was, as you know, some of the most organized and driven and because of their commitment, you know, well-funded. It was all their own self-funding. It was all reinvestment. 
but they had the money in place to be doing things for real. That said, it was it was our take on things that like, okay, if you have mu- if you have recorded music, we'll play it. Right. If you don't, come in and we'll play a beat and you can freestyle. If you're not able to do that, yeah. Just come in and talk to us and, and we'll tell people where to go see you rap. Like it doesn't matter what you have access to. We're a place where you can come. And so, you know, when you called and said, I'm coming, I'm a local rapper and I'm on my way. It was like, great. We'll see you soon. Okay. Um, and I've said this to you before. I don't, and I, I feel like I've said it publicly as well, but I, I'll just say here for this interview, you came and you had, my memory is that you had one song and it was a song that ended up on the Rites of Passage tape. And I was not a fan. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I was not impressed. <laughs> um, was it Eye of the Storm? Is that what you came with? Yeah, it was Eye of the Storm. And I mean, it was, you know, that was probably my first time ever. It wasn't even a studio studio. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, that was my first time ever recording myself. Yeah. And yeah, it was a very straight ahead. It wasn't, you know, there's nothing special about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and my, looking back, it's just my strong impression that you really hadn't found your voice yet. You didn't sound like you yet. Right. You know, you you sounded like um, a developing version of an imitation of something that we were fans of. Yeah, that, that's know? exactly what it was. And that's why we never, I mean, you already know this, but that's that's why we never re-released Rites of Passage because that's that's me being inspired by the beatbox and by Rhyme Sayers and by, you know, Raw Villa and the Abstract Pack and like the few people that we knew that were making their own music. But I was still rapping like, like that was the last kind of circle of artists that I still sounded like them. So it was most F, Kwali, Common, Black Thought, pretty much everything on that project is like, oh, now he's doing Black Thought. Okay, this is Kwali. All right, now this is most F. Or this is KRS-One. But I mean, that's what that, and that's why I called it rites of passage. Like I, I knew that about myself. I knew that like, mm-hmm. this is, uh, you know, my attempt to graduate into somebody that d- does this seriously. Yeah. But I knew, I, I knew I wasn't there yet. Yeah. I mean, and and I would say that I was lucky enough to really get to witness what I think was was the cocoon period, like the the transformation period from that era into the beginning of the next era. Obviously working with Ant was a huge thing for you, but I think before that um spent, you know, you and I used to sneak into the beatbox, uh into yeah. the radio station late at night on a, on a weekly basis and and just record verses. Um sometimes we would loop something up and make a little beat. Sometimes, you know, you were doing production, so sometimes you would bring in beats and sometimes we would just use, you know, existing instrumentals. Um, But like you would come in and you would have verses written most of the time, but you didn't have enough experience in a studio to just like one take them or like knock them out quickly. And so we would, you know, this is something really unusual, I think, for you nowadays. But back then, we would just, to get one verse, we would record it over and over and over and over and over again. And you would come in, and at the beginning of a session, whatever it was that you were bringing in, I would have never heard before. And by the time we said goodnight or 
good morning, I guess, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, by the time the sun was rising and you and I were like stumbling back out into the morning, I would have heard you recite this so many times that I knew every little word of it, every little internal rhyme and things that I didn't catch the first four times mm -hmm. now were my favorite parts of the song. And week after week coming back in and making those recordings, I really, I, I got to witness you getting comfortable in the studio and learning like how to use your voice, even like your timing on the beats really changed yeah. a lot. Um, you really found your, your studio self. Well, you didn't only witness it, but I mean, you facilitated it. So the first time I met Slug and, and Idea was at the beatbox. But then the first time that I performed with them and the and when I met Sadiq was at Hip Hop for the Homeless. So you guys followed in their lead and, and threw a benefit show for the homeless, uh, unhoused is what we say now. But I opened at that show and I also, I can't remember if I hosted it or not, but I I definitely opened and I definitely was very near the stage. <laughs> like I, I spent the whole night with like one foot on the stage. Just like if anybody needs someone to take four bars or something, I, I got you. Yeah. Man, that's the first time that I met Sadiq and me and Sadiq looked at each other and it was like, that's when we started our relationship that basically led to me being on Rhyme Sayers. But then what that, you're talking hold about up, in terms hold of- Hold up, that, that, that was the night of Hip Hop for the Homeless that you met Sadiq? Yeah. Yes. Wow. What I know about that night. So January 1999, there's a lot of firsts and lasts and just interesting confluences on that night. Mm. So I, th I think of that. Do you think of that as being your first show? I know that you've performed a lot before no. that. No. I've heard you say that, but that, no. no. Okay. <laughs> I, no, I, no, I, I had, me and Aaron Money actually were doing Headspin. Ah. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, we had done shot to Sky Rossi and to okay. Big Zach and those guys that were. So I had done has been. I think I I can't. I might have already even battled Carnage. Hmm. Like I was already somebody at Headspin. Okay, okay. Um. So I'll strike that from my list. <laughs> yeah. But okay. So but it was my first show with Rhyme Sayers, and it was my okay. Yeah. So so hip hop for the homeless. We'll say that's your first show with Rhyme Sayers. That is that show was the last time that Slug and Spawn performed together. Yeah. That's the last Atmosphere show where Atmosphere was two MCs. That show was the first that's time- That's where Spawn quit the group. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that show was the first time that Beyond introduced himself as Musab. That's true. He came out and like those were the first words out of his mouth. I now go by Musab. It was the last show that Headshots performed as a collective. It wasn't billed that way, but it was it was all of Rhyme Sayers and Abstract Pack. Yeah. And it's the last time that they that they all got down together. So, it, it, you know, it's just this. And I've, do you know that I've got that entire show on tape, not videotape, but on audio nope. cassette? I've, I, I, Another thing that I'm totally cool. I was going to say, I, I, I don't know that I ever need to go back and listen to it. I'd rather just remember it with rose colored glasses and and remember all the things that I'm really proud of but that that was that night was a was a really big deal yeah man so then me and you started hanging out and I, the first time I went to your crib so I was like I, I I knew that there was that you and I had an uh, a greater understanding of the music that was being played at the beatbox that was more broad 
than the other guys. And like no disrespect to them. But you asked me one of the first times you were like, so you're Muslim and you're into hip hop. You asked me about Islam and hip hop. Hmm. You asked me about that like connection and you were like, what is it that like all the greatest lyricists, he, and you were asking me like, are they Muslim or are they just are, are like, are they actually like, what's the, what's the link there? And I remember you asking me that and being like, whoa. And I was really surprised that you picked up on that. Um, and, but then also like I could tell that you had an understanding that hip hop was part of a historical musical right. legacy and lineage right. that you had to view all as one. Mm -hmm. And also that it was related to culture and it was related to history and it was related to black history and American history and music history. And like, I got that from you right away. And it, and it, but it wasn't academic. Like mm -hmm. there was something about it that was very like genuine that you seem to be like really rooted in this stuff. But you also were very culturally like white. Like you weren't like the type of white person who would know those things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? In 1998, yeah, you know what I mean? I do. <laughs> and I went to your crib and first, like I saw your records and your books and you had all of these, like in terms of on the record side, you had stuff that I had no clue about. Hmm. And then also on like the books that you had and had a very deep understanding of, I was like, man, I've never, I know why I need to know these things. Like I know where my relationship with this stuff comes from, mm -hmm. but I was almost like, why do you know this stuff? Hmm. You know what I mean? Or like, how did you, how did you get to the point where I think the first night we had long and then we, we basically formed our bond over long conversations around history, black power, what white supremacy is really about yeah. spirituality. You know what I mean? You had that, that spiritual lineage of like traveling to India, seeking spiritual connection, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so before we ever did music together, it was like these long talks about what it all means. And I had never been, I had never been around a white person that I could talk like that hmm. with an equal level of energy and like, like this is at the core of who we are. Like that's what the bond is based on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now's the point where I want to hear about how how did you start learning about the Black Panthers and about like black militancy and you know this this like history like where mm -hmm. did that what was your exposure to that and how did you mm -hmm. how did you become so rooted in it at already at such a young age um yeah good question i think i think part of that answer comes from understanding milwaukee uh my family moved there when i was a baby and i was raised there until i was 18 and you know, one of the things to understand about Milwaukee is that it's danced between the number one and the number two spot of most segregated metropolitan city in America for something like 40 or 50 years. So I grew up in this city where every neighborhood was pretty much all the way one folks and one experience. And I don't, know the reasoning behind this, but my family kept moving around. Uh, in the 17 years that I lived in Milwaukee, I think we lived in something like seven different distinct neighborhoods. I started off living in North Milwaukee, 
which is almost entirely black. It's one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. We live directly across the street from a cemetery on 60th and Burleigh, and then moved directly from there to the east side, which is the rich white neighborhood on a bluff that overlooks Lake Michigan. You know what I mean? Mm. And then moved from there to River West, uh, which is the black and Puerto Rican neighborhood. By the way, one of the only mixed neighborhoods, and it's only mixed because uh, a freeway project tore through a black neighborhood and a Puerto Rican neighborhood, displaced them both, creating one of the only places. So it's the Bronx. Got it. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'm saying all of this to say that I, my experience, one of the realities of my experience of growing up in Milwaukee is that I grew up in a very, very divided, very segregated, very racist environment, mm. but took turns living in almost every area of it. Spent time living with, going to school with folks from all over the city and from all different experiences, which was, it's my understanding, a very unusual experience of Milwaukee. And so from year to year, I had these really different experiences of who my friends were, mm. who my neighbors were, who my coworkers were, who the people that I rode the bus with were, like who the people that I lived my life with were. Mm -hmm. And there were periods of time where who those people were was like late 80s, early 90s, white, liberal, middle of America folks. But there were also periods of time where those folks were uh, almost entirely Hmong immigrants or were almost entirely young black people or were almost entirely um, native and Puerto Rican folks. And that didn't feel, you know, when you're young, nothing feels weird to you. It's all just the water that you're swimming in, mm. you know. All of this is to say that, you know, my introduction to kind of everything that plays an important role in my life, from books and ways of thinking to you're going to get punched in the nose if you say the N-word when you rap along with a song, to words and phrases and ways of dressing and and um, bands or MCs to listen to, you know, it all just is a product of who I was surrounded with. And as I said, uh, I was surrounded with everybody, but just kind of one at a time. happy to finally be able to have this conversation on the mic with BK1 because for a lot of reasons, I mean, I, I've never heard him really be able to spell out his story. And it's really important to be able to do. It's an incredible life, you know? And, um, but also because he is so foundational to the work that I've been able to do. And what you're hearing as we, you know, kind of unravel this reality in this tale and this story and this journey together is that he and I started out as people that love music, that love culture, 
we didn't know what our place in the industry would be or, or even within the artistic community. But the two of us believed in each other. We believed in the message and we were willing to put in the work and just be as sincere as possible. Try to give as much as we possibly could and then just find the people that it connects with. And I was just recently talking with my dear brother, Yasin Bey, who was telling me that there are three ways to be if you're going to be a public person, three ways of relating to people. Some people have one of the three. Some people have two. Some people have three. But he said, you know, there's famous. And most people become famous when others look at them and see something that they aspire on a, on a really kind of instinctive kind of animal level. So you look at somebody that's really sexy or charismatic or powerful, you know, something that's like, I wish I had what they have. And then there's also people that are rich. And those are usually going to be people who are, have some degree of fame, but also they sell and inspire other people to a lifestyle of consumption that's useful to the business world. So the business world gets behind them. You know what I'm saying? So you got famous when somebody wants to look up to you and be you, and then you got rich. But he said, there's another layer there that shouldn't be overlooked, and that is love. To love and to be loved. And the only way to do that is to really give of yourself to the point where other people are fed by what you're giving them. And that's what really grows the bonds between people. You know, and, and Yasin, I don't know if Yasin is rich or not. I, don't, I, I just don't think he cares about money very much. But, and I know that he's not trying to be famous, but although people look at Yasin and it's like, man, what an amazing person, but he's definitely loved. And that's where we connect because I love y'all and I know that you love me. Like there, like there's just, and that's a beautiful thing. And I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. You know what I'm saying? But I'm also not famous and I'm also not rich. And that's because I don't sell an aspirational thing. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I never present myself as being anything other than your brother. It literally is in my name, my stage name, Brother Ali. I am your brother and I'm not rich. I don't sell a lifestyle. That's just never what, been what I'm about. But we have this real genuine love thing going on. And always the way that BK1 and I have kept this thing going is just by finding the people who receive what we're putting into the world, hoping that it's genuine and sincere, and the people who want to support it by being a part of it. And we used to do that by doing all of these shows all over the place, selling a lot of shirts and, and CDs and records and tapes and all that stuff. And now the podcast thing that we do is online. And, you know, podcasts, the, the streaming services don't pay us for them. We get fractions of a penny if people watch them on YouTube. But the way that this thing is sustained is if you go to brotherali.com slash join, you go on that section and you'll be able to see our caravan, our community, where you'll be able to log in and you'll be able to interact with me. And depending on the level that you get in on, you can also interact with other people. And there's a growing kind of catalog that we're building there of rare and exclusive music and videos, lectures and conversations and all type of really rare and exclusive stuff. And the one that we just put in there that I mentioned at the beginning is one of our last tours together was the Fresh Air Tour, where we were rolling out the Us album. 
went on tour with Evidence, Toki Wright. We did over 50 shows in 60 nights. And somebody just happened to be recording our show at Mr. Pleasant's in Louisville. And so we w looked around in the archives and we found that. And you're not going to be able to find it online. There's nowhere else where you can get it. But what you'll be hearing there is a snapshot of what it was really like during those formative years of underground, independent, Midwest hip-hop music, what the fans were like, what a night on stage was like. So head to brotherali.com in the join section. You can get down with all of that stuff. You can challenge me. You can ask me questions. We do entire episodes of the podcast that are just people asking me, how dare you support this? Why haven't you talked about that? I thought you said you were going to do this. How come you curse on some of your music and not on others? What's going on with all... All of that stuff is happening there. So head to brotherali.com in the join section, sign the mailing list, and get down with this caravan. So when I met you, you know, I had a pretty good knowledge of soul music. Mm -hmm. You knew more about that than I did. But also, like, you really had, like, a full, like, your understanding of jazz was already really extraordinarily developed you know and that was a time before websites that you could go to and find who people sampled and right, stuff like that right i mean you were able to make mixtapes of like this is a, these, these are all the tribe called quest samples that i already have in my collection mm -hmm. you know what i mean i got i'm not even know if i got the right but man diamond d discovered art tatum at some point like those were the kind of things that you would say yeah. and i'd be like Okay, what do you mean by that? And then you'd play all these records and be like, he did this for so and so, and then Large Professor sampled this, and then High Tech is doing this, and you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So let's hear about your musical training. Sure. That boy, that's that's one where it's hard to know even where to start. Um, mm. You know, I, I'll begin by saying that Milwaukee. You know, the move from Milwaukee to Minneapolis felt like a step up. Um, it felt like I was moving to a bigger city. But I'll say Milwaukee for routing um, is in a better position than Minneapolis. In other words, it's on the way to more places. And so a lot of tours yeah. that never go to Minneapolis absolutely stop in Milwaukee. So there's good concert oh, venues. Okay. There's a lot of good shows. Summerfest, um, which is this huge, it's hard to describe, but this big annual festival that essentially lasts the entire summer. The city of Milwaukee sits on Lake Michigan and right where downtown and the freeway run into the beach, there's a, a big festival grounds there. All summer long, the biggest acts in music would come play at Summerfest and you could pay, I don't know, 30 bucks or whatever and get a good seat. But the entire like back third of the amphitheater area where the crowd was, was all grass. And all you had to do was show up earlier that day and get your hand stamped. And they would let you come watch concerts for free. Crazy. So I think of Milwaukee as being a city where music and arts were really respected and supported and where growing up, I was just constantly exposed to them. When I was really young, my mama and my babo, uh, my mom's mom and dad scraped the money together to buy me a piano. And I started taking piano lessons. So I took 12 years of classical piano, 12 years of music theory, 
you know, from a pretty early age, the adults in my life were treating me like I had a lot of natural talent in this area. I was pushed to sign up for as many extracurricular musical opportunities as I could. They signed me up for all these uh, like piano competitions that we had to drive around the state for, and I did win most of them. Uh, and from an early age, I was getting paid to put on a bow tie and play piano at like a wedding reception or a fancy catered event or whatever. And so even though so many of the ways that music lived in my life at that age were dictated by the adults around me and frankly were kind of corny, I, I really did fall in love with music. Mm -hmm. When it came time to go to middle school, because we kept moving, there wasn't just sort of a natural neighborhood school for me to feed into that all my friends were going to. And so I really had the ability to kind of look around the city and advocate for myself based on where I wanted to go. And there was a middle school of the arts, Roosevelt Middle School of the Arts, and then there was a high school of the arts. And it was just my natural impression that artists are the cool people. Like that's, that's what the cool stuff is, people who make stuff. And so I, I really had to fight. We, we toured all the big middle schools and there were other ones where the academic program seemed stronger and my mom really wanted to push to get me there. But somehow I won and I got to go to the middle school of the arts. At the middle school of the arts, there was theater and dance and chorus and band and orchestra and jazz and visual art. And over the course of your three years there, your sixth, seventh, eighth grade there, you had to take everything. Um, it was like a repertory. You were expected to study everything. So I was actually given, I never utilized it, but I was given a ballet scholarship <laughs> while I was there, apparently. I have some natural skill for ballet. <laughs> um, One of the many things you have in common with Prodigy. With Prodigy. Don't, don't call me Twinkle <laughs> Toes, though. P. <laughs> um, it really was high school where everything came alive for me. And that's for a number of reasons. The first of them is that the jazz program at my high school was just truly incredible. It, it was run by uh, a man named Clifford Gribble. Cliff Gribble. Cliff Gribble. Everybody that knows you knows Cliff Gribble. We've never met him, but we all know Cliff Gribble. <laughs> great jazz name and a uh, great man, you know. <laughs> the man that is responsible for making me fall in love with jazz mm. and really instilling some of the core principles of my understanding of music and creativity and collaboration. Mm. This is a man who, by his own telling at least, was on track to be a great jazz piano player. Nobody really knows how true that part of it is. Uh, but he, he had a hand injury. Also don't really know how serious this hand injury was, but to hear him tell it, the hand injury sidelined what would have been a very promising jazz career and instead turned him into a jazz teacher. Um, you know, who, who knows... Who knows about this? I wish you won't make a bet I could throw a football over that mountain. That's right. <laughs> you know, who who knows how much of that uh is is only true in his head, but the 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 great jazz teacher part of it is absolutely true. He took his entire record collection and brought it into the classroom. He emptied out a closet. He had a walk-in closet and built a a library of jazz records and cassette tapes of like uh, bootleg concert dubs and 
European radio appearances. I mean, this is a man who, this was the first real collector that I ever met. And the context in which I met him as a collector was as somebody who was freely sharing his collection uh, out of love for what was in it and wanting for young people to, to see what he saw there. And so there was never any signing out records. There was never any checking in with him. It was just he brought his life's work of collecting jazz records in and made it clear these are for you to take home with you. And I have to assume that he knew that a lot of them wouldn't make it back, but that he hoped that whoever's house they ended up in, they were planting seeds for future lovers of jazz. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it worked for me. And so I was constantly borrowing records from Mr. Gribble. This was the space where I figured out it's not just about whose name is on the front of the record figure out what what year it came out figure out who engineered it figure out what record label it came out on you you love these three records that have philly joe jones playing drums on them it seems likely that this fourth record where philly joe jones is playing drums is also one that you might enjoy (laughs) you know huh that ray brown guy seems to be a good bass player what else does he play on (laughs) you know and I mean, this is the this is the foundation of digging for hip hop records right. and for samples and for that's right. Yep. Yeah, man. The first day that I got there as a freshman in high school, the jazz program, what they did was they split everybody up based on what they were playing. And so you get there, and he says, you know, where are all my trumpet players? And you know, twenty people all raise their hand, and he says, okay, look around. The other 19 people in this room are, for the next four years, your competition. These are the people who you're trying to be better than because what you want is to be the trumpet player in the best group here. Because when you're the trumpet player in the best group, it means that you're constantly traveling. It means that you're constantly meeting great jazz musicians from across the world. It means that you're constantly getting opportunities to perform and grow as an artist. That's the group that I invest the most energy and the most opportunities into that's the group you want to be into look around here's your competition now where are my saxophone players okay look around the other 15 people in the room they're your competition and he got to piano Mm -hmm. and at this point i had 12 years of piano i had 12 years of music theory you know but i'm looking around and he says where's all the piano players and like 40 kids raise their hand I'm just, I'm looking from face to face and I'm like, I'm better than a lot of y'all, but probably not better than all of you, (laughs) you know? Mm, And he says, mm, mm, is there anybody that I missed? And I put my hand up. He says, what do you play, son? And I said, I play that thing. (laughs) I pointed over to the corner and there was a set of vibes in the corner, a vibraphone. And I'd never seen anybody play a vibraphone before, but I knew what it was. I'd never heard of Milt Jackson or Roy Ayers, but that was a sound that was familiar. I know that that's that's on the the, the Tribe Called Quest record. I know that thing. Yeah. And I'm looking at it and it's shaped just like a piano. Right. It's like, I could play this. I know how to play the piano. I could play this. And the other two people, it turns out, who play vibraphone, who actually play vibraphone, who have actually touched a vibraphone before came to the vibraphone the traditional way, which is as a percussion player. And so my competition, everybody else is competing with the other 20 trumpet players. I'm competing with these two guys who 
don't know a thing about harmony or melody, you know, th- there are people who take turns like on this song, you're going to play the snare drum. And that means that you're counting rest for like 37 bars right. and then going. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and that's that's your contribution to the song. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And so it took no time at all for me to to get past these guys and get into the top group. And Mr. Gribble would consistently say, there's only so much I can teach you in the classroom. The real good stuff you're going to learn standing up on stage with your stomach in your throat and everybody staring at you. You're going to make mistakes in front of those people and then you're never going to make those mistakes again. (laughs) You're going to try things that you've never tried before and when they go well, they're going to be your new go-to. You know what I mean? And they're yeah, things that, yeah. that you just could have never learned sitting in this classroom with me teaching you the theory of how to go from a two to a five to a one, you know? And so true to his word, you know, especially as I ascended to higher level groups uh, within that program, I was constantly, constantly touring and performing. And, you know, once I got into that top level group, I was also constantly being exposed to some of the greatest jazz musicians in the world. I, again, I have no idea how much truth there is to Mr. Gribble's fabled jazz career, but he sure had connections. Mm. And anytime that anybody came to town, please believe that they were going to be in our classroom talking to us and playing music with us. And then later that night, we were going to be at their concert and oftentimes backstage. And so when I was like 15, 16, 17 years old, I was learning from and playing music with and watching play live Milt Jackson, Sonny Rollins, um, Yousef Latif, uh, Benny Harris, Benny Carter, Ray Brown, Cedar Walton. Um, you know, you were talking about some of the Latin jazz greats from New York. I got to play with Eddie Palmieri and hear him telling stories. Um, Thelonious Monk Jr. Um, who as a musician has a, a, a famous and instantly recognizable sample that, uh, public enemy used. But, you know, to me, here's a guy who's telling us about his dad and about coming downstairs for breakfast and Art Blakey being in the kitchen on a regular basis, you know, and just getting to hear those stories. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't just the old heads either. Uh, you know, Josh Redmond, um, Terrence Blanchard, uh, who has composed for just about every Spike Lee movie. Yeah. Roy Hargrove, uh, who was like an wow. unofficial member of the Soulquarians and played on like Water for Chocolate mm-hmm. and Voodoo and Mama's Gun and a bunch of them. And then Wynton Marcellus. Um, you know, I, I played with Wynton Marcellus a number of times. My mom... Crazy. I, I I took my mom backstage at Pap's Theater on her birthday, and he hung out with my mom for a while, played her happy birthday on his trumpet, and then wrote her a little note where he transcribed the notes to happy birthday and, you know, happy birthday, Linda, you've got a great son or something. Amazing. So, you know, all, anyway, all of this to say that I, I, I got these just fantastic formal education opportunities to meet and play with some of the greats in the jazz world 
um, to borrow records and equipment and really fall in love with the process of listening to and understanding and creating music. But then also, you know, the bass player in my band uh, in high school, this guy, Anthony, pulled me aside and said, hey, I play in a band with this guy named Tom Noble. And we're looking for a keyboard player. I know you play vibes, but I heard that you, you're a really good keyboard player. Uh, would you be interested? And just w- without asking any questions, the answer was an automatic yes. Do I want to be in a band? Yes. <laughs> and, mm. you know, that's the other thing happening here is that Milwaukee had a vibrant local music scene. There were a number of all ages clubs like Shank Hall. Um, where it was easy to get your band booked. It was, you know, it was easy to promote your show and there were always shows. So if you were new, it was, it was easy to find somebody to open for. And the scene, this is embarrassing to say, but the scene at the time was a ska scene. Milwaukee was really well known as a, 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 a place for ska. For those who don't know, ska is, is Jamaican music that that predates reggae and is considerably faster and higher energy, but has a lot of the same sort of like rhythmic components to it. And in Jamaica, you know, a lot of the people who created ska music and were like, you know, similar to like the Funk Brothers uh, at Motown, it was primarily really sophisticated and knowledgeable jazz musicians taking their chops, taking their ear for harmony, taking their knowledge and applying it to something that was like this regional sound, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. the people's music. Ska, by the time it made it to the States, was considered like third wave ska. You know, in in working class England, there was this second wave of ska that happened with like two-tone records and um, Madness and the specials. And then you get like the third wave of ska, which is a lot of like American punk bands playing their version of ska. <laughs> it's it's from them that ska largely has sort of a derisive attitude formed about it. You know, you get kind of a smirk yeah. when you say I was in a ska band. Yeah. But but in Milwaukee, the culture of ska music was very reverential to Jamaican ska and to the musicians who made it. It was very reverential to the soul music and the R&B music and the blues music that the original ska musicians were doing covers of and were listening to. And, Mm -hmm. you know, similar to how the earliest hip hop DJs were world-class diggers and had connections for where they were finding records and were like scraping labels off so that they could keep that, you know, their arsenal, their private thing. Mm Similarly, you know, a lot of the Jamaican ska musicians uh, and label uh, owners and DJs were enormous fans of American soul music and would have connections in like the, the, uh, the Navy, mm. connections in like shipping. So they, they would find Americans who would bring them, uh-huh. you know, boxes of 45s and it's like a new box shows up here's my new secret ammunition, you know? And, uh, and so I always wondered how that happened Yep, because you just see so many of these like replays Absolutely. and like, yep. you know what I mean? Like tramp turning into champ. Yes. Like that kind of thing. That's right. Yep. 
you know, and so in the same way that a lot of the biggest DJs and songwriters and producers of Jamaican music of that time were huge fans of American soul and funk and R&B, mm-hmm. you know, ska music also became a gateway for us to Sam Cooke and Art Neville and Aaron Neville and Alan Toussaint and to Lee Dorsey, Curtis Mayfield, the music of Stax. It was really, but jazz and ska were like the two things that opened me wide up. Um, And Mr. Gribble was really in love with the spaces within jazz where musicians had discovered Afro-Cuban music or Brazilian music. And so in addition to all the musicians and the legacy and the music theory, as well as just all the great music that, that the jazz opened me up to, it also opened me up to the music of Central and South America. It opened me up to this idea that I'm still just obsessed with these ideas of like polyrhythms and twos playing against threes and writing music outside of four, four time signature. Um, you know, so jazz and ska were like these enormous jumping off points and Tom Noble, the guitar player of the band that I joined, his older brother was the bass player in like the biggest band in Milwaukee and was somebody who was like a hero to me. He was also a supreme record collector who went on to open the biggest record shop in Milwaukee called Lotus Land. Mm. Um, but ah, but through him, I don't think I knew that. Mm-hmm, through him and through Tom, just so many records, labels, principles of record collecting. Um, just my eyes got open to so many of the things that became just the bedrock of like who I am as a as a musician, as a record collector, just as a human being. <laughs> Um, a lot of it can get traced back to Tom Noble and Cliff Gribble. Man, it, it, it always happens that when I talk to people that I know very well and just actually ask them a question, I learn like, and, and it, so many things also start to make sense, you know? Um, yeah, man, that the, those those early connections to, you know, different different waves of music and then also you know, that, that you were just so prepared, even in that hip hop space to understand, um, performance and traveling. And like the, you know, those were all things that you had done that I hadn't done mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a trip too. that. So like we start out meeting you on the radio and then just hours and hours of conversation about how all these things connect. And then, you know, I learned so much about music and still do, you know, from, from you. And then, recording so at some point then we start performing together and i mean i I, like we both know the exact day Mm -hmm. because when idea won the blaze battle yeah on hbo and krs1 literally gave him a belt and crowned him the freestyle champion of hip-hop music in in 2000 we had a party for it we had a celebration for it at the red sea Mm-hmm. And somehow a big screen TV was brought in and the new, the you know, the local news came and covered it and me and you performed. And that was like such an electric night, man. 
It was a really incredible night because somebody from our crew had actually, that was the first time any of us were respected by actual hip hop. Yeah. The, in a way that we all could understand and all could really feel. Yeah. Like f for KRS One in that moment to be like the champion idea. idea. Yeah. And they gave him a, you know, a, a big shiny coat <laughs> and he was supposed to get a record deal with Puffy or something like that. And, all of this stuff. So that was that was our first time performing together. And then we started doing it regularly. Like we were we were doing stuff like a, a few shows. We were doing minimum two gigs a week mm -hmm. in Minneapolis between Red Sea, uh Gastoff. I mean, we would, you know, any of any of the artists in our vein that came through, I mean, we opened for De La Soul and uh that famous night that we were supposed to open for Yasin and most Def's not here and he's not coming. Oh man. Just gotta be like... the person to tell the truth to people. <laughs> I'm gonna destroy everything by telling the truth. Um yeah, man. So that that really started that, but then it, it always felt unofficial. It always felt like you were gonna be the DJ until mm -hmm. The DJ comes along. Like you were just helping me out. You're yeah. just like, well, I could I could put together a set. Yeah. I can run your set. Because also you from that very early time just knew every rhyme in my arsenal. That's right. Like you knew you you had every bar that I ever spit memorized. Yeah. I, I don't remember why you stopped working with Aaron. Um, but my memory of 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 beginning to work with you was very much like Ali needs a DJ. I have the equipment and I know the songs. I, I'm I'm willing to do this for him. It wasn't like, this is my opportunity. <laughs> it was a favor to you that felt like a temporary thing. And I don't remember the show, but I remember during that period that you're describing, I remember something happening that forced me to look up and realize like, oh, I am Ali's DJ and the opportunities are about to get big for Ali. I owe it to him to get good at this. You know what I mean? Well, I, rem I remember there's a specific conversation where we went on the God Loves Ugly tour. And, you know, that tour is really where we finally figured it out. Like, we really cracked the code on that tour to, like, yeah. this is what it means, at least in 2002. Right. When Shadows on the Sun isn't even out yet, but mm -hmm. it's coming. Mm -hmm. I had sold those Rites of Passage tapes and did a good job at Scribble Jam and there was like a little bit of a buzz in that like internet era. Mm -hmm. But then when we did that, I mean, that was something like 65 shows or something like mm -hmm. that. Like we did an incredible number of shows right. with Merce, who already was extremely seasoned, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And with Atmosphere and Dibs and like, you know, and Jaybird and- And Blueprint, yeah. And Blueprint, yeah. But I mean, Blueprint was also, you know, Blueprint was more closer to where we were, I think, in terms of his experience. He was a little more experienced than us, but he wasn't quite where Merce was or where Sean was. True. But man. But he had music out. We wrote out. You didn't even have music yeah, out. Yeah, and he also was a label owner. No, yeah, I didn't have anything. Yeah, we did that entire tour being extremely broke, sleeping on Bird's floor. Mm -hmm. You know, we made almost no money. Like me and you split $100 a night. Yeah. And like eating the food that was left over from like, I don't really, like we didn't really eat. You were still vegan. 
I lost a lot of weight on that tour. I came home from that tour and had a lot of people like doing wellness checks on me. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, that was really, and you were selling merch on that tour. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a, a lot of us, I, I would say like that crew of people that were on that tour, it's not an exaggeration to say that we're different people before and after the experience of that God Loves Ugly tour. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the God Loves Ugly tour was even for Atmosphere the first time doing something that big, but then for the rest of us, you know, it was our first time playing most of those cities, most of those states, um, but also even just having the repetition of every single night, sometimes twice in a night, we're in front of a new audience doing the same thing. Yeah, and so. You know, part of part of our education on that tour was just through the trial and error that that makes available to you. You know, yes, um, yep. the ability to say, <laughs> you know, for the last three nights we've had them until this song drops, and then we've lost them. Yeah, so we got to look at that part of the set. And you know, I I remember distinctly coming back into Minneapolis. We left on Slug's birthday for that tour and we came back on my birthday mm -hmm. and oh i remember your birthday yeah <laughs> do you i don't i don't remember anything about it and we shall not speak about it <laughs> um uh yeah no but uh you know i remember rolling back into minneapolis and it didn't go this way but i remember you and i feeling like conquerors coming back home to be celebrated you know what i mean we we left feeling like opening opening acts and came back mm -hmm. feeling like now we're seasoned pros now we know what we're doing yeah you know you had found your voice we had found our set you and i had found our chemistry and our pace and we had started to you know we had really evolved from a place of like we can get people's attention and do some cool things in front of them to we know how to take all these different tricks and package them into a perfect little half hour and be better than anybody else We're stealing this who's going to be up here tonight, even if they have songs that the audience knows and Ali doesn't. You know, you can't steal the show from, from a beloved headliner. Mm -hmm. And this is what Slug already knew, but he was like, your job is to steal the show. Yeah. So, because he's like, if you, if you are the surprise that everybody is so in love with, it just makes it better for me. Yeah. He's like, you're making this better for everybody. You know what I mean? So he was just so generous and like wise in that regard. And they're like, that's what you're here to do, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but man, the time of really developing that and learning how to do that, like I think the fact that we were doing that together, that me and you very specifically, and you already had the... You know, like I knew how to get up and talk in front of a room full of people. Like I, that was no problem, mm -hmm. like me being on the mic. But in terms of like how to organize that into a set, mm -hmm. into like almost uh, showing people like a movie or telling them a story yeah. about who this guy is. Right. That was something that you understood that I didn't, that I learned along the way. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you recently told me that like you were studying the way that magicians like did their act, you know what I'm saying? But like, what are the things that went into that for you and how were you approaching it at that time? Yes, Ali, 
not only am I a former ska band member, I am also a former magician, <laughs> currently a podcaster <laughs> with a background in DJ. <laughs> if this, if this was a first date, do you feel like it would be going well? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, uh, there was, so in Milwaukee, there was a, uh, there was a kid named Eli Horowitz who was by far the greatest uh, classical piano player that I ever met. And I forget, I think, my, I think our parents had some sort of like childcare arrangement because I spent a lot of time hanging out over there and I don't remember being, I don't remember that being my choice, but you know, after we got bored of showing each other piano stuff, he started showing me magic stuff. He was really into Penn and Teller. Um, who were these two magician comedians who were really irreverent and were really into sort of like sticking their thumb in the eye of like the stuffy traditionalism of magic. Um, they were, you know, kind of mm. like punk rock magicians, which was just kind of right up my alley. If you were going to introduce me to magic, they were the guys to do it through. Mm. Eli's love of magic eventually rubbed off on me. And the two of us for a brief time started a, a a business performing magic for little kids' birthday parties. Mm. And in putting together our acts, I did a lot of research. Okay, you know a bunch of tricks. How do you put together something that you're going to perform in front of these, you know, 15 third graders or whatever? Um, you don't just do them, you know, here's one, here's another one, here's another one. Okay, I guess I'm out. Ta-da. You know, how do you make it into a thing? And so I went to the library and I got this book. And it was basically a book of how do you put together a magic show? And it walked you through these principles. Um, I'm not going to spell out every single one, but you know, when you think about your act, when you think about you and me performing together, a lot of this starts to sound familiar. Mm -hmm. It's like you come out and you have to assume that nobody has any idea who you are or what you're capable of. And so you need to be prepared to do something that's the magic equivalent of saying loudly, excuse me, can I have your attention? <laughs> you know, you need to walk out and have something that takes no setup, no context, no explanation, just something that you can do that instantly makes everybody stop talking to the person next to them and look at the stage. Mm -hmm. It needs to be in and out very quickly. And you need to be prepared to follow it just as quickly with a second thing that's a little bit less like showy is a tiny bit more impressive, but has that same sort of like, you know, you like sweet here, try this taste sweet. Don't it, you know, from there you start taking them into things that are longer and have more steps involved mm. with them. You know, I think in terms of magic, uh, at, you know, your third trick, was supposed to be something where you're telling a story. And along the story, there's multiple small tricks, you know, all these little things um, that sort of mm -hmm. cascade up into a grand finale of the end of that story and so on and so forth. You know, it's this idea of, again, you don't just make a list of everything you know how to do and then do them until you run out. You think about what are all the tools that I have at my disposal? 
how do I put them in an order mm -hmm. and how do I pair them with conversation and body language and use of my physical environment so that collectively they take people on a ride. They give people an experience. Yeah. And it's part of why I loved being your DJ so much because you had so many different tools. Mm -hmm. Even before you had a lot of songs, you had the ability to be a, you know, a big, tough battle rapper. You had the ability to be legitimately funny. You had the ability to do like, you know, I feel like we had like sex rap in there. We had it, political stuff. <laughs> yes, we did. We had personal stuff. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Oh, man. I forgot about like, that. Like, we yeah, just, yeah, we yeah. had so many colors that we could paint with. Yeah. That it made my. And beatboxing and acapellas and. Yeah, that's right. That's not, yeah, that's right. Ra rapping over, like, and then, and then because also because of your eclectic music stuff. Like we would rap over an, an instrumental, a hip hop instrumental, and then you would throw on like the 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 song that it sampled. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And and I would I would do the other verse over right. or over right. that. Or you yeah. two are you doing double time over like a dub record mm -hmm. while I took every eighth word of yours and threw it through a, an echoplex or you know yeah yeah we we were having a lot of fun playing with tools and a big part of that was that you had all of the raw talent and none of the material you know what i mean mm. nobody knew any of your songs yeah. you know you you and i do these online songwriting workshops and one of the things that you drill into people's heads early on is it's all about having songs that connect with people you know yeah, you gotta have the you, 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 It's not enough to to be charismatic and have rhymes for days. Ultimately, if you're gonna leave a lasting impression, if you're going to be an artist that really means something mm -hmm. to the people who mess with you, it's through the songs. It's through a catalog of songs that touch people. And you did not have that at that time. And not that not that we're released. We, Shadows on the Sun was done. That was one of the main challenges for both of us is like we rolled out on tour and we both knew, like, I think we both felt like, man, Shadows in the Sun is about to come out and that's going to mm -hmm. really make a, a, a mark. But nobody heard it. That's true. And and so that was- That's true. But, I, but, but rewinding further than that, there was a period where I was your DJ where you were recording with Ant and you had recorded, right. you know, you and I had recorded at Radio K. I've listened to some of them even recently. You know, we had things that were in the structure of a song, mm -hmm. meaning like there's three verses and there's a chorus and it's over a beat. But it's like, if you listen to Shadows on the Sun, okay, you kept those two verses and changed the chorus and it became star quality. And this chorus mm -hmm. turned into that. And this verse never got used, but this, you know what I mean? Like, they weren't like you had done a lot of writing when we started working together, but even with lots of battle rap verses, they didn't really go together. Like I remember putting together set lists where it would be like fast battle rap one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, you talking about before the tour? Before the tour, even. Like, yeah. And yeah. so our, our challenge, and it's one that I feel like was really formative for us and that we really rose to was how do you take this guy 
who's got raw talent, who's got charisma, um, and has some verses that have some like, oh, moments in them. Mm -hmm. But nobody knows, nobody knows any of the material from, and how do you make something with that? Right. You know? And so our early sets were really big on moving very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, we took very few talking breaks in those early sets. And well then, and, but then even those, we really developed them to like, yes, they were, those were very intentional. And like, it was almost word for word, like a, almost like a George Carlin type of comedy routine where like every single word like I knew all of the pauses, all of the intonations. Mm-hmm. Like there were times where like I started to learn that if I did a deep voice, it would hit the the woofers and the so I would be like, We're gonna burn it to the mother ground. Yeah, yeah. And I knew that that would like rumble rattle chest. And people would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. The, even that was very intentional. Yeah. I mean, it, well, and it got to the point where even we would have something go bad. And the way we fixed it or the way we we reacted to it had such a strong effect that after the show, it'd be like, okay, well, how do we work that in? You know, it got to a place where like by the end of that tour, that first tour, you were praying for a heckler yes, because the heckler is part of the set now, you know, like which one of you guys has no idea what you're about to step into? That's right. That's right. <laughs> which one of you is about to have your face barked off and has no clue? Yep. <laughs> which one of you is the sacrificial lamb that is about to make Brother Ali a hero in Iowa City? <laughs> uh, man, not just in Iowa City. That's though. what I'm saying. I'm going to say something to you that I say to myself and I say to the people that I love. And don't take it the wrong way. You should be in therapy. And I'm not saying that because I think something's wrong with you. I'm saying that because of the way that life is, what it's like being a human being at all, and especially in the times that we live in. And a lot of people feel like, well, I don't need therapy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm good. I don't need to do that. I don't need to pay some stranger just to, but listen, look at for these things in your life. Do you go online on social media and either repost memes or make random kind of like subliminal messages about people uh, because of how frustrated with them you are and you just got to get that frustration out some kind of way? Do you ever go in there and do things where you're just looking for attention? So sad right now. I can't believe it. You know what I'm saying? I've done my own version of that. I've made entire albums like that because I need attention and I want to talk stuff out. Do you ever get on the phone or voice notes or something with a friend of yours and complain about the world, complain about your significant other, complain about your friends, complain about the the, the situation at work? Uh, do you ever find yourself in these uh, repeating cycles where like, how come I give it all to everybody and nobody ever gives anything for me? Or how come when I want this, how come when I give people advice, they take it wrong? What's going on with this? All of these are the something going on inside of us saying, yo, you need, you deserve, 
you're ready to sit down and talk these things out in a way that's actually constructive and productive. You can you can spend the time talking to your friends about it, you know what I'm saying? And maybe they like doing that with you, or maybe they're just being kind and polite to you. But chances are that the good that's going to come out of that is very limited, you know what I'm saying? Because that person is your friend. That person is trying to hang out with you. That person might want something from you. When you do this stuff in therapy, literally anything you complain about, these people are trained to look for what's productive in there. How can I reframe this and ask it back to you? How can I put a mirror up to show you what you're saying? How can I, how can I get you to think about this from a different perspective that actually will turn it into a tool that brings you peace of mind? that brings you greater understanding, that gives you tools for coping with what's challenging, that gives you and I and me new ways to talk through this stuff with the people in our lives, to actually be able to do something productive and constructive with all of this frustration that we're feeling, all the stress, the sadness, the anger that we're carrying around with us, the anxiety, the worry, the dread, the regret. There is something that can be done with all of that. It doesn't have to be like that. And therapy is the ultimate self-care in a lot of ways. There's something about it. It's like equal parts selfish and it's also work. You know what I'm saying? But it's constructive. It's productive. It's healthy. It's healing. It's good for you. It's good for the people in the life. It's good for your kids, man. Go to therapy for your kids' sake. Don't just put them in therapy and be like, you, you guys need therapy or your dad needs therapy. I, I, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what's wrong with him. Your mom, she's crazy. I'm saying go to therapy for your kids, go to therapy for your significant other, go to therapy for your parents, go to therapy for yourself, go to therapy so that you don't have to repeat the same cycles over and over and over and over again. Betterhelp.com is how I do it. Cause I don't live in America and I don't have a job. So you go online, you go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash travelers. That's how they know that we sent you there. So they give you a discount and we also get a commission to help out with the work that we do here. And then you just go into this world of therapy. It's just really dope. I could tell you all about it, but you should just try it for yourself. You know what I'm saying? Because you got nothing to lose but the cycles of stress. Another part of it is that you were always down to be in physical danger with me. Mm. Like there was a lot of danger and I'm not just talking about driving around, but I'm saying like, you know, I, th I think about times where like, you know, like in the early 2000s and the late 90s, early 2000s, like underground hip hop was still a very like rough thing. Sure. I always knew that if I have to fight, mm which which was a very real possibility a lot of the time. Like, I think a lot of the times that, like, I mean, me and you opened for Brand Nubian in Baltimore. You remember that? Oh, sure, yeah. So, like, we had been on tour with Atmosphere. Shadows on the Sun was out. Atmosphere was, like, really dark, almost, like, hardcore at that point. And so we were on a particular shorter run with Atmosphere where we were doing all bright, happy like it was all take me home and right. like we were intentionally being the the bright contrast to atmosphere right in the time when they were still wearing like spiked 
uh, wristbands and things like that. We were on some like, we're going to be the contrast to that. And then we went immediately from that to play to opening for brand Nubian yeah. in Baltimore of all places at the yeah. auto bar. Yeah. And we didn't change the set. <laughs> And like we got in like the first or second uh, like second song, we just looked at each other like, "Yo, this is gonna be horrible!" Like we've made a horrible mistake. And uh, yeah, and, but and, and I mean, but we both committed to it. Like like man, we had done so much of this yeah. that like we just looked at each other and it was like, <laughs> "This is gonna be dope." We have the entire wrong set. Yeah. Our first night. This is our first impression on Brand Nubian. This is like. We had only played in Baltimore once or twice before. None of these people, they're all here to see the legendary, like the pro-blackest, five percent or as black man as God group on That's earth. Right. And then they hear that they're good, that Brother Ali is opening, <laughs> and then this walks yeah. out. And it's just like you ain't gotta love. And we both were just like, let's do yeah. it. Let's go for it. And we committed to that thing, man. And we did the joint, and then somebody in the club had a mic, maybe probably at the soundboard. And they were like, hey, y'all, Skinny Fat Joe, Skinny Fat Joe. And I did what I always do. I was like, man, get your motherfucker, like, da 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 And the crowd was kind of like, whoa, because that's not the set that we had just done. <laughs> right, right. But but I could I remember people looking at me and like looking me up and down and being like, oh, this part's real. Mm -hmm. Like, this dude means mm -hmm. it. You know what I mean? And I just knew... Because we had been in this, we've been in this situation. I already know. Brendan already has a bottle in one hand, a brick in the other <laughs> hand, and it's not a game. Mm -hmm. Like these people don't know. Like we're outnumbered here, but it's about to be mm -hmm. bad for whoever. Mm -hmm. And we get off stage, and Lord Jamar is standing there, and Lord Jamar is like, "Yo, that's the illest shit I ever saw." <laughs> and then, like, dude. Lord Jamar gave me his his dinner that night. Yeah. <laughs> like they had gone and got fish and he was just like, yo, you trying to eat? Yeah. You know what I mean? But I just remember also those times too, man. Well, th those were some of my favorite times. You know, like mm -hmm. it, it, you and I, just at least within our experience, had had reached fairly early a place where going out on certain tours was was going to be like, padding our energy mm -hmm. but then there were other tours where we're here specifically because nobody in this room knows us yeah we're here to win converts and we have the highest respect and admiration for these artists who are sharing their stage with us but once we walk out on that stage it's combat that's right we're here to win yeah and those were my favorites in part because there's something that that kind of energy does to a relationship that's just kind of beautiful, you know? Absolutely. You know, there's something about looking at each other before we walk out on stage and just being like, you ready for this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> let's go, <laughs> yeah, let's go get them. <laughs> but then the other piece was yes. just, you know, what you just described in, in telling the Brand Nubian story, you just described all of these things that before you or I do a single thing are already stacked against us mm -hmm. before, you know, like there's, there's certain things that, that the Apollo theater 
you don't even get a chance to be good. <laughs> you just open your mouth and the siren That's has already right. gone off. And Sandman is already, <laughs> is already sweeping your ass yep. off stage. <laughs> and you and I refuse to lose in those situations. Absolutely. And yeah. pretty quickly showed ourselves that this for good reason. Because time and time again, we would get in front of crowds that were heckling us, that were either explicitly or implicitly threatening us. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just watch. It's like, okay, give it five minutes and let's see. Yeah. You yeah, know? That's right. What? And I mean, you think about who we opened for. We opened for Rakim. Mm-hmm. We opened when like Rakim had been gone. Right. And Rakim, like that period, that early period for us is when these people were starting to come back after there was like a weird, there was this weird thing where like people got aged out really quickly. And then- in that, in that early, so at this point we're talking about two thousand four, something like that, five six. That was the time when the blog started coming, and it was like, okay, no, now they're starting to tour as elder statesmen. Hmm. You know what I mean? That also was the weird time, that weird kind of split of like, you know, the the white underground had 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 come into full swing, right. and those two worlds had nothing to do with each other. And we were one of, if not the only groups that really went back and forth between those two worlds. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. we opened for Rakim on the Rakim is back tour. We opened for Big Daddy Kane uh, when Big Daddy Kane like was doing some of those early shows. We opened for MF Doom. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Uh, we did stuff with Daylight. We did like a lot, like a lot of the stuff that we were doing. Public Enemy, Jizza, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, was like this is like very sacred. This is the holy grail of rap music, and if if you don't really show that you deserve to be here, you are actually a sacrilegious. Like you're, you are poisoning the most uh, sacred well of. That's right, and. The fact that me and you built our relationship on those hours of conversation of what this all means, Mm -hmm. we shared a feeling that like, it's supposed to be stacked against us. Yeah, yeah. We do not have the right to be here. That's right. Like if if we're going to be here, it's got to be because of the deep love, reverence, and like, like like we understand that, you know, for us to be here and that reverence is shown by being ill. That's right. And that reverence is shown by like by being completely comfortable in that hot seat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and and being like, yes, I understand. Yes, sensei, I'm here to earn it. You're not supposed to like me right away. That's right. You are you you do not owe me like you know Lord Jamar like come, we'll come, like when they came in, they weren't speaking to us, yeah. and we were like, okay, this is your backstage. This is your tour. Right. This is your family's legacy. This is you, like me and you came in on some like we're here to like clean up after you like literally like we're here to clean up your backstage we're here to serve you food we're here to go to the store for you mm-hmm. we're here to and then when we get on stage we have to earn it yeah you know what I'm saying absolutely and like we were that's the ethos that we came from yeah you know what I mean yeah and and all of those are things that people that are really like those like black crowds and artists that are like deeply tapped into culture that's something that's felt mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so there's like a, a there's like even something with the way that we're standing on stage where there's like a, a dual thing of like oh i know mm-hmm. i know mm-hmm. like you're you, you you're not wrong 
but neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And man, that was like some of the most fun, man. It's mm-hmm. like, so we did the God Loves Ugly tour. And then Shadows in the Sun came out. We toured with Merce. We came back, toured with Atmosphere again. Mm-hmm. And then we had several years of like opening for those legendary guys and like just kind of testing the water. And then it was a full five years before Undisputed Truth came out. And that's when we started headlining. So we did a full like five years of being the openers and being new and being the support and being the, yeah, you know what I mean? Well, and as the DJ, I'll add to that of touring essentially the same, you know, like eight songs. You, you had Shadows on the Sun and then you had the, the Champion EP. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Shadows on the Sun has however many songs on it, but it's not like every single one of those songs is going into an opening acts set. You know, some of them aren't even going into a headliner set. Right. You know, you've got a small handful of songs that are appropriate for the stage. And then, you know, the Champion EP added a couple more to that, but we we stayed touring consistently. Yes. And so we found ourselves going back to the same city five, six times with no new songs to perform. Yep. And it really became a challenge of, you know, initially the challenge was they don't know any of this music and they don't know who you are. How do we put together an act that's entertaining and attention grabbing? And by the end of that five mm-hmm. years, it had turned into they know you, they love you, but they've already seen you perform three or four times in the last couple of years. And you don't have any yeah. new material that they're excited about. So how do we take that same, that same music and, you know, do new things to it that keep it exciting, that keep the show unpredictable? that that continue to lean into all these different sides of Ali, you know, how do, how do we get all of that personality across on stage and all the best parts of this music without just rehashing what we did six months ago when we were here? Yeah. Yeah. Making completely new sets out of the same very limited body of music. Right. And yeah, and we, and we took a lot of the things that we did in the early years too, where like there were new verses from different things and rhyming over jazz records, rhyming over soul records. Man, and I mean, there were times where I remember, for me, I'm very proud. Like certain things that me and you are proud of that like nobody will even ever know happened. <laughs> yeah. But we did a cover of Johnny Cass and Shell Silverstein, yeah, Boy right. Named Sue, over Nas Bridging the Gap. Bridging the Gap, right, yeah. Like, man, that's a that's a very special thing. And I remember that like me and you would put just hours and hours and hours we spent at your little studio apartment. Yeah. And I lived like a block from you. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? So, I mean, it was literally every day, like we would be in, in your spot until four in the morning, just perfecting the hi-hat on some remix of some, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and doing it without a whole lot of technology. Right. Like the things that we were doing at that time were not, now you can just put something in Serato and make an acapella. Oh Lord. You can just solo the drums. I mean, we went through my record collection. I had the idea that you should come out to Brothers Gonna Work It Out by Public Enemy. Mm -hmm. And there's no instrumental for that. So you and I went through my record collection and just track by track pulled out the 17 records that it took to remake that beat. And then just reconstructed, reconstructed the, the whole, whole thing. Beat. We 
brought live musicians in to replay pieces of classic samples so that we could give them endings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I want you to play the yes. organ part from Champ. And the reason that I want you to do it instead of sampling it is so that we can have it re resolve to the A chord when Ali says this part. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want you to play the bass line from Freddy's Dead because I want yes. to modulate it on the second verse. We're going to go up so that it's in the same key that this next thing that I mix it. Like, yeah. that's, that's how serious it got. You know, it, it, it started, it evolved from a place where it was like, I'm going to bring in the song that this sampled and then I'm going to mix from that into this. It turned from that into like kind of more compositional mixing, mm -hmm. you know, where we would say, you know, we want to use the beat that Pharrell made for this Nike commercial, yes, but we want to use it with sort of the skeleton of the show by by Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew, yeah. And so, yes. like, we're gonna we're gonna take we're not just gonna bring those three records, and I'm gonna like first I'll start with this, then I'll cut to this, then this. We were like really constructing an elaborate in an, an MPC, like an elaborate arrangement. Mm -hmm that had things coming in and out, yeah. you know, and then had me scratching in little texture things or whatever. And I mean, I, I, and, and so I never, one of the first major accolades was like when we, we performed a set like that at first Ave opening for De La mm. and we got off set and first Maceo said to you, y'all killed it. Mm -hmm. And then we got off stage and then that's the first time that me and Paz ever really talked. And mm -hmm. that's one of the first times I ever really talked to Dave and Dave, Dave actually remembered stuff that we did from that show. Wow. Like he was like, oh, you guys did so-and-so. And like he was on some like, like the, the, all three of them yeah. are on some like, no, this dude is serious. People just don't know. Like those guys are for real. Right. They, people just don't know it, you know? Yeah. But yeah, man. And then I think about the fact that we, when we would do our tours, we were inspired by the stacks and Motown reviews where there was like one band That's right. performing for everybody. And so me and you went in and when Evidence opened for us and when Toki was playing with us and like, you know, certain other uh, folks were playing with us, not only did you DJ for everybody that was on stage all night, you, you built also the transitional DJ sets in between them. <laughs> but like we reconstructed people's entire beats, like for the openers, for the support, for the host, yeah. you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like that same like level of care and attention and meticulousness yes. that we were yeah. putting into your sets. Yes. We were putting into the opening, yes. opening act because when we came through, yes. we didn't just want you to crush. We wanted the night to crush. Yes. We wanted we wanted it to be an entire experience that began two hours before you ever stepped foot That's on right. the stage. That's right. Yeah, man. I mean, when I think about the level of work and care that went into those, just to everything we did, man, it's really like, I feel very proud of it. And, it, and it's weird. Like, I almost don't care that nobody knows it. Like, nobody knows that we did that. I'm saying, like, I would put the stuff that we were doing, at least in terms of the thought and the, like, you know, you're probably not Quest Love. I'm probably not Black Thought. But the level of care that we put into what we were doing is right there with the Roots and De La and anybody else great. 
you know what I'm saying? And yeah, and as you said, over time, as we got more and more opportunities to do it in front of those people that you're naming, yeah, whether or not their fans saw it, they absolutely yeah. did. The number of times that you know, a Maceo or a Devin the Dude or <laughs> whoever pulled pulled me aside, and and didn't just say nice things. But said the right nice and very things specific, that really showed man, me. I can't believe you did so and so. That's yeah. what I'm saying. That's right. Yep. I mean, and and you named it. Like I I didn't know that that day last show stood out for you that way. That was a huge one for me, because De La Soul was really the first hip hop group for me who had a great live show. Mm -hmm. That that was the group who I came to know. They do creative, yeah. fun, amazing things live. Yeah. They don't just come do their show, their songs. Yeah. And I would never miss them play. And I very clearly understood that Maceo was an important piece of that. Yeah. And, you know, him and Jazzy Jeff were like the role models for the position that I was mm. playing in your live show. And so for me, you know, we, as you said, we opened for them at First Avenue for De La. And Maceo, he gave me a compliment in passing, you know? He was he was passing behind me to get to- Just to set up between Like sets. the riser yeah. or whatever to get set up. And he was like, hey, great show. And I was like, thanks. And then he stopped himself and I watched him like, muster the intention and the energy to like stop his body turn around face me and go no for real that was something special and then to name the things it was like oh we're really doing it mm -hmm. this isn't just us aspiring to to pay respects to the greats through our work you know because de la i think viewed their show the same way aspiring to be cold crush brothers mm -hmm. they had that same attitude in their live show of we owe it to those before us to keep alive what they've built but also to build off of it yeah you know to make it distinctly ours while also showing the crowd that it's still alive and well and that it has value and that we kn know it and respect it so there, there was a lot of those moments i had a similar one with doom doom um, loved you <laughs> like doom loved you like it's weird me and doom did not get close on that tour really but i just remember that like you made him so happy that he would just be like i love this guy mm. that was an amazing one man and but and then also there would be nights that me and you after our show it the club would switch into club mode and so would we and then you would just be djing a party and i think you know, people that, it's just so weird that like the, we lived in a time, like this was a time when things weren't documented. Yeah. You know what I mean? Rhyme Sayers never really documented their stuff. Like they never really, do, like so much of what happened in that time period for a lot of us, man, that's a really incredible cultural moment that I just think didn't really ever get documented properly. It's one of the things that I hope this podcast can contribute to, but mm -hmm. it's tough. You know what I thought was going to be a moment of finally capturing greatness and sharing it, and then it never happened, was the Rhymesayers' 10th anniversary show. Yeah. The 10th anniversary came, 
and you pitched this idea to Sadiq that you and I had become like the heavy hitters within within the camp at putting together sets. And so you had this idea, what if BK and I put together a collective and set? And DJ you know, it and rebuild gonna, everybody's, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna celebrate 10 years of Rhyme Sayers. What would it look like if BK and I just took the entire Rhyme Sayers catalog yeah. and did with it what we do with ours? Yes. And we don't announce it that way. Yeah. We put all the names on, on the poster, but we don't tell anybody that everybody's performing mm -hmm. together. It's not one, then the next, and that you and me would just hold down the whole thing. Um, and we pulled it off. We, we pulled off this incredible show. My memory of it, at least, is that it was really an incredible show that quickly took you through the entire history, yeah. starting with the earliest songs, and then jumping into some of the so yeah, it hits. started with Black Culture, which is the first you know it's one of the it's the first like single off the first album, which is Musab. So it starts with Musab on stage by himself, but Slug does the chorus on that one. So then Slug comes out, yeah. And because people think they're about to see a Musab set, I just got goosebumps. People think they're gonna watch a, a Musab set. They're like, oh, this makes sense. He'll open it. Mm -hmm. But then Slug comes out and does the hook, and then Slug stays on stage. And then it goes directly into an and atmosphere song into, where the drums from right. one song go keep going and the sample from the atmosphere song comes in. Yeah. And then Saab is doing his backup vocals. And then during that time, somebody from Los Nativos comes out and then, you know, Saab leaves the stage and Slug is doing backups over a Los Nativos song. And then... Mm -hmm. idea comes out or then you know right and the whole night i mean doom was there everybody on the label at that time was there and everybody really like we put together this perfectly orchestrated two-hour set yeah two of underground rappers doing their songs and do it we had rehearsals right we had yeah yeah man and it just it also happened at the perfect moment right 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 that was a really special thing and it was recorded and I guess those those tapes got lost or something. But I mean, me and you spent 40 to 60 hour weeks for well over a month putting that thing together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And man, that was a yeah, we did. That was a beautiful thing. I mean, that that <laughs> I remember up to that point you had been vegan. <laughs> I remember at one point, like in those last few days when we were not sleeping at all, I remember we ordered pizza luce. And I just remember you looking at a piece of pizza and just being like, just eating it. And like, we were all sitting in the room like, yo, this dude's eating cheese, man. <laughs> <laughs> like literally that thing, you, you sacrificed your veganism for that joint, man. So before we move out of this period though, I just want to give, um, it's something that I think I want to do in general um, and even hit up people that we've had on the show. Um, you know, we did it with we did it with Slug, and I think we touched on it a little bit with with Sage, but just just give a minute to talk about and reflect on Mikey on idea. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Mikey, I didn't meet quite as early as everybody else, but when I did, in some ways, he was the person at Rhyme Sayers that I grew the closest with. Mm. Um. There were things about he and I that were very different. And when we would run into those differences, it would always kind of shock us. Like we would both kind of be shocked when we would run into like a place where like, oh, 
for all the ways that we really line up right here (laughs) (laughs) not at all um but you know like he was so interested in a lot of the um spiritual thought that i had had an opportunity to really spend significant time with great teachers of we also bonded over music because we kind of filled some of each other's gaps he did not know very much music theory but was really interested you know this was around the time of like oliver hart Mm -hmm. his solo project he was really interested in production and had a wonderful ear But there was just some basic things that he didn't know. And so he and I used to sort of like trade each other music lessons. He and I would just kind of geek out over highly technical things. Even within spiritual conversations, it tended to be the sort of like nerdy, philosophical, how do you interpret this type stuff, Mm -hmm. not the touchy-feely stuff. Yeah. Because that's who he was. You know, for somebody who was such a live wire, for somebody who was so funny and could tap into such a deep well of emotion. He seemed to understand the world and process the world through a very rational, a very like scientific mind. Yeah. He and abilities. Uh, I was never as close to abilities as I was to Mikey, but the two of them together were an obnoxious treat. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> that is the best way to describe it, man. <laughs> I mean, like they, they were way too much, but it was also hilarious hilarious <laughs> i'll never oh forget God. uh being out in california somewhere and waiting in line for i think maybe a car rental spot there was like a one of those like cardboard cutouts of like some guy with like maybe like a lay around his neck like pointing to the line you were supposed to go to some some cheesy thing and the two of them spent 15 minutes riffing off of each other on this concept of the idea that there's a graphic designer somewhere who had an incredibly stressful day trying to pull this thing together and like came home and snapped at his wife because it had been a hard day at the office. (laughs) You know, I mean, and just went into it on such a microscopic, just found every morsel of it that had humor hiding in it. Yeah. And was so loud and... (laughs) Dude, so loud. You know, like, one of those things where, like, if I wasn't laughing so hard, I'd be terribly embarrassed No, right yeah. Now. <laughs> that was dope. You know, another thing, though, is, like, you were very early at being, like, these people care about what we're doing. So, like, we might not have the biggest crowd, you know, especially when we were starting out. Like, we didn't have the biggest crowds. But you were like, these people, this is part of who they are. Like this music the, and these shows we're doing and this music, these songs you're writing and the, the, the feeling that they're having coming away from these shows, like this will never leave these people. Like these, and they'll never leave us. Like these, and we'll never leave. Like this is a, this is more than just a, a, a moment of being the hot new musical thing. Cause we did have that moment together too. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was a time when, when like, you know, I was doing the TV shows and we were the, you know, Herb and Rolling Stone and all. And mm-hmm. I remember when Pitchfork started rating my records higher than Atmosphere Records because they were the clear front runners mm-hmm. and I was the mm-hmm. underdog. So it was the cool, mm-hmm. like, and I remember you saying that, like, it's cooler to like you than it is to like Atmosphere for someone like Pitchfork, but that's not mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying in those moments, like, 
that part is really fun, but that's not the thing that's really driving this. What's driving this is like all of the heart that's in these records and all the and and then also the experience that we're that people are having in these nights that we're putting all this work into. Yeah. And I think that that's really rare. You know what I'm saying? I think it's really rare that somebody like the fact that we also bonded on that, the the very human connection that's happening here is something that's really important. And that was at a time too for me where I was like, man, this isn't the audience that I wanted to be embraced by. Yeah. Like I wanted to be with Yasin and Kwali and Black Thought. And years later, like those artists now embrace me, mm-hmm. but the audience still hasn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. But it was a really important thing at that time that you're like, man, but these people, it matters to them as much mm-hmm. as it matters to us. Like these, this audience, regardless of what they look like, this matters to them. And and there's a very real heart and soul and like life connection that's happening here that's important. Mm-hmm. Even like so so even if the people that are, you know, marketing our music, even if they didn't. You know what I'm saying? Because we even felt like underdogs at the label. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We're like, you know, God, God bless them. They didn't come to our shows. You know what I mean? Like they weren't coming to see us when we were, you know, doing our thing and like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So that's another thing that like now that we're coming back into kind of starting over in this weird, we're back in, I feel like we're back in no man's land again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, how do you have a second act as a as a a person who never really had a hit the first time? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'll add quickly mm-hmm. that I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about my position behind you on stage uh, is, you know, when I came to Minnesota and went to school, my degree is in sociology. You know, the, the, the study of how people move as groups, Mm. you know, it's like the psychology of groups almost. Mm. Right. And I was always, you know, the, the, the ego will do what the ego does, but for the most part, I was always really clear. You are the star and I'm here to make as many conditions favorable for you to shine as possible. Mm. That's that's my role. And, you know, you have vision issues and all the lights are pointing at you. Mm-hmm. And in a moment-to-moment basis, you have more to do, mm-hmm. right? I'm standing behind you with the lights hitting me less directly, uh, w- with eyes that are already going to see better, and with the ability to just kind of be semi-invisible even while standing in plain sight. And so I'm, I'm usually on a riser, more elevated than you are, looking down on you, looking down on the crowd. And especially once we started touring, where, as I said before, we're not just performing a lot, we're performing literally nightly, and we're performing variations of the exact same thing nightly. It gave me the ability to look for patterns. Mm. And to look for, um, you know, what is the big picture here? Mm-hmm. You know, you would step off stage and have lots of little like glimpses, lots of little moments that you could reference. 
I viewed my jo- one of my jobs as being, I need to be the one who really takes the temperature mm-hmm. because I, for a number of reasons, I have a, a better perspective than Ali does of what's working and what's not and who these people are. And, you know, there would be shows where the markers of success that we were looking for would not show up right. from the crowd. Yeah. But we would check in afterwards and I would have to say to you, I know it didn't feel like it, but this was a big one. You know, we won tonight. Also, you understood those people better than I did. Yes. Like, I, I you know what I mean? Like, I grew up never feeling safe with white people. Mm-hmm. physically, emotionally, and everything else. Like I had yeah. to really learn that. And also like, I didn't understand their cultural references. I didn't understand their musical references. Mm-hmm. I remember like, I wanted to rap over all kind of rock records that you were like, no, these are not good rock records. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like certain jokes I would tell where you would be like, I know why that's funny. They don't know why that's funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? So yeah. a lot of that too is like, you really helped me understand and then also when you were like no when they're like we talked about this with Merce too because Merce did it too but you just helping me understand this is how these people express right their admiration and gratitude and right warmness and like you know where I was just like these people are disrespecting me and they want to fight and you were yeah. just like no that's not no there's not right, right. <laughs> or I would be like why aren't you into it I remember I, there was people in the crowd I would yell at and you'd be like <laughs> He was deeply contemplating what you just said. Like you just said something really deep and he had never heard that before. Like he was listening, man. Like yeah. sometimes they're just listening. Sometimes they're just <laughs> and listening. And I'm like, they man. all want to jump me. They're gonna call the police on my friends. I'm <laughs> yeah. Like, man, I'm in I'm in my trauma moments. And uh-huh. yeah, man, that yeah. context is really, really valuable, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I, I really enjoyed that role. I, I thought, I thought that I had had a unique set of experiences and relationships that gave me, um, I felt like I was in an interesting position to be able to take advantage of that perch up there behind the, behind the turntables. And yeah, just having, having the ability to analyze the crowds with you was one of my favorite pieces of it. So yeah, we started in 2000, was our first show together. From 2000 until 2002, we were figuring stuff out while I was making the Shadows on the Sun album and just figuring it out. Mm-hmm. 2000 through 2003, or like early 2004, we're touring with Atmosphere. And that's when the, the touring career started. 2004, five, six, that's when we're opening for all these legendary people and doing like, you know, all of that touring. And then 2007, we start headlining and it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. 2008, it's pretty good. 2009, like we're selling out the venues that we used to open for Atmosphere selling out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like we were really in a moment. And then at the beginning, like right when the Us album was just about to drop, we're just about to tour with Evidence. We're just about to have our second, like, you know, like a victory lap. It was the first time that I finally, you know, 2007 and then came back in 09, a, a year and a half later with another, with a follow-up. And, yeah. you know, the the money was going well. We were selling out all kind of stuff. It was like, it was going very, very well. And you came to me and in the very organized way that people hear you talking now, <laughs> you said, 
this year after we after we're done with this tour, which was like you know one of those like epic three month seventy city tours, uh, we're gonna start trying to have kids. We're gonna try to get pregnant. Once we do, I'm gonna tour for six months, and then I'm gonna be done, and I'm not gonna do this anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so we did the tour, went to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, very soon after that, you were like, okay, the six month starts now. The, One the, take the, hove. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Incredible. Incredible. Um, you know, and, and so that countdown started. We did a few more things. And you left, I would say at the height, but really almost like, before the height i would say Mm -hmm. the height of it happened in the like three years or so after you left Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like after you left is when i started being like a major person on rock the bells yeah when i did the jake one record and those kind of things what was it like for you to step away from something that you really helped to build Mm -hmm. and Especially I'm I'm thinking about like that decision, but then also the years after that, you know, touring is such a, it's a very unique, distinctive, it's a very specific lifestyle yeah, that is. like only touring comedians and musicians really understand mm-hmm. what that is. You know what I mean? And I just wonder like, what was that, what was that period like for you? Yeah. That's an interesting question. Well, you know, a couple things really helped with that transition. Um, some of them might make sense. Some of them might not really make sense. Um, for example, the fact that it was 10 years, the fact that you and I performed together for 10 years and, and, yeah. and then it had an end, there's something about the roundness of that number that really helped me there's something Uh. final or that like feels complete about 10 years that like for example nine would not like there's an itch that's not scratched there have you ever heard jerry seinfeld talk about this no he he quit the seinfeld show yeah he quit seinfeld he quit doing the show at nine years because he didn't want to hit 10 years huh because he felt like it's if i do nine and and that's and nine years is how long the Beatles were releasing records. Yeah, yeah. So so he was like, if you hit ten, he's like, there's something about that that feels final. Whereas mm. if you keep it at nine, then it feels. He was like, it felt like we were leaving while people still expected us to keep going. Uh. Whereas like, so the fact that it was nine years made it feel to people like, wait, wait, I can't believe it. What are you doing? Whereas like at ten years, it was like, okay, farewell. You did the full. You did your. You did your time. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. Mm. That's really interesting to hear you say. I never knew that. No, I haven't heard. I haven't heard. It's funny. That's almost like a. It's the same interpretation, but but a a, a flip reaction to it. Um, like I yeah, like I'm saying, I found it very comforting that we hit ten. Mm. It also meant something to me, you know. By design, Radio De Cannibal came out. Um, you had a new record coming out. And I knew that that meant we're going to essentially do a full year where we hit every single major market that knows who we are. We're going to be there doing a show. And so if I get my act together 
and I can put this together on the right timeline and I can get it out on time, it means that I'll have a capstone project. Mm. You know what I mean? I'll have a physical, I can walk over right now and pull out of my record collection a physical item that I can hold in my hands that represents to me a culmination of those 10 years with you. So I have something physical, tangible that I can show for it. Yeah. Um, and that when I look at it, it represents to me the success and the fun that those 10 years hold. Yeah. Man, there's so much to talk about here. And I think at some point we're just going to have to cut it. Like, I think there's no, no way around the fact that this is just going to have to be two episodes. Mm-hmm. So if it's okay, let's stop right here. And then when we circle back, I, I want to really get into, I want everybody to be able to hear about the albums that you made as an artist and as a producer mm-hmm. and the work in radio and all of that other stuff. Cool. So um, let's end it here. And man, thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally get to do this. Thank you. All right, brother. Yeah, peace. Much love and special thanks to one of my dearest friends of all, BK1, uh, for being so gracious, generous with his time and his stories and his, just for sharing so much. And it's really deep. As I listen to this, I realize BK1 left the touring with me after he had built it up to its height. And the time that he left the road and stop touring was really as I was about to reach my height. It was just once I had started doing stuff on TV and, you know, doing Coachella and Rock the Bells and all these big tours. And he left right at that time because he knew that there were other things for him to do in his life and with his life and building a family and all of this stuff. And those are the things that we get into next week. We'll, we'll hear about his his work as a producer, as an artist, as a musician, his work in radio, a little something about his family life, but the things that he knew were callings for him to dedicate his life. And then ultimately coming right back here to building this podcast together and building Travelers Media. And it's all very, very beautiful. Make sure you go to brotherali.com, sign the mailing list and go to the join section so you can check out, I mean, along with all the other stuff that we have posted there, rare and exclusive music videos and all kind of content. Uh, Also the ability to ask me questions, challenge me on stuff, uh, communicate directly with us. At the top tier, I mean, that's just a whole other situation. At the top tier, we have a Slack channel where we communicate. I just kicked it with one of the brothers, uh, one of the homies uh, from that top tier of Trailblazers, just came to Minneapolis um, from talking over the course of the last year and some change. Uh, the brother actually just became a Muslim and we were able to welcome him into the community of Muslims, which is a really, really beautiful thing. And uh, so, you know what I'm saying? We have meetups, we kick it with each other. Uh, the Most of the people that are subscribers, they get free stuff, they get early access to stuff. When we put out these exclusive records and we do our learning series, that top tier, usually we hit them up and just be like, hey, you're getting this for free, don't even worry about it. You know what I'm saying? So go to brotherali.com in the join section, uh, along with all the merch and all the events and all of the the stories and stuff about the music that we released and all of that. There's videos there you can watch, all type of stuff. But you go to that join section and that's where you really remain part of the community that we're building around this work that we've been doing for the last two decades plus. So we will see you next week, inshallah. 
special thanks and much love to all of the people that help with the podcast. Amna Mirza, Mansur Panawala, Darian Washington, Last Word, Ant, Mark from Medina Hip Hop. Shout out to you all. We appreciate you all very much. And we'll see you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.